This morning we turn to Psalm chapter 34. So if you'll turn there in your Bibles, I think it's on page 433 in the Bibles if you didn't bring your own. Psalm 34 is another one of these interesting psalms because of its structure. It is, and I just love to say this word, it is an abecedarius. That means it is an alphabetical acrostic. Every verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There is one letter that is skipped and one letter that is usually doubled at the end because it has a dot in different places in Hebrew, depending on if it's a sheen or a seam and how we pronounce those words. But there's an irony here. You might notice the title of this psalm. Again, the titles we don't think are necessarily original to the text, but we basically take most of them for being accurate. It says, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, if you know the life of David, you know there was a time period he was running away from Psalm in 1 Samuel 21, and he ran over to his enemies to seek a place where he could find refuge. But he quickly realized that this was no place of refuge because he was an enemy to this people and he had actually been in war with them. And so he pretended to be insane. In fact, the scriptures tell us he let spittle flow down onto his beard. And of course, the king said, what do we need this guy for? We have enough insane people in our land. So in the midst of that situation, the one who wrote the title to this psalm, if it's accurate, it's so ironic because at the same time he's pretending to be insane, he is writing a very technical and difficult poetical style to praise God. You see, he was in pain or peril at home because his king was seeking to kill him. And he was even in grave peril abroad, so much so that he acted like a crazy person. And there was only one place to turn, and that was to the Lord. And this psalm, I think, is all about David's relationship with the Lord and the Lord's relationship with him. Follow along as I read. Yes, it is an interesting poetic structure, but it involves for us many, many wonderful truths in Scripture. Follow along as I read. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. 
The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. As we consider these words, true and everlasting, let us turn to the Lord briefly in prayer. Lord, guide our hearts. Open our ears that we might hear and marvel at the truths contained therein. Lord, remind us of the wonders of your grace and the depths of your love. We pray, Father, that the words spoken here might be consistent with your own. The thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight. Or, Lord, remove us or these words from your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you know my wife and I, you know that both of us fall into the category of teachers. My wife is a teacher, and she comes by it honestly right now. Both her parents still are teaching in a Christian school. Her brother is a principal in a Christian school. Her sister teaches also in that Christian school. And she has been teaching off and on through church and through school and other means all of her life. I have been called to teach and to preach as part of my calling by the Lord. We love to teach. In fact, I would say I get energy from teaching and preaching. In fact, I have to admit to you, those weeks when we have a guest speaker or someone else is preaching, I struggle. I struggle because it is such a part of my calling, and I am so pleased to tell others the wonders of God's grace. And Jennifer and I, at times, both struggle with some other parts of ministry. If you know Jennifer, you know she struggles with interpersonal relations. That's difficult for her. She can teach and speak in front of 100 people, but to go one-on-one is difficult. I don't necessarily have problems with interpersonal relations, but I can get lazy with them and put them off because I'd rather study or I'd rather teach or preach. David here is a teacher in this psalm. You might notice that a part of this psalm is a wisdom psalm. In fact, those who are commentators try to categorize all the psalms, even though they don't always fit in categories, and they say this psalm is a thanksgiving and wisdom psalm. But it's not just about information or intellectual development. You know, there's a sense in our culture around us that teaching is just imbibing into information or causing your students to imbibe in the information that you give them and to grow intellectually so that they could practically live their lives or so they could just rise in wisdom and become, I guess, smarter people. But the scriptures are not like that. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And in this psalm, even though there are great wisdom and teaching elements to it, is really about our relationship with the Lord. First of all, David expresses to us his relationship with the Lord, David's relationship. Then he pleads that the reader would have a relationship with the Lord. And finally, 
he turns the tables and talks about the Lord's relationship with his people. Verses 1 through 7, the first third of this particular psalm, reminds us of the duty and the wonder of being able to make a vow of praise. This is what David is doing in verses 1 and 2. He's saying, basically, this is the vow I'm making before the world. I will bless the Lord. And notice when he decides to do it. Always and continually. Now, my guess is that there were times when David broke this vow I have to say there are times I certainly have broken such a vow if I were to have made one like this. But reading the scripture, if we read it by faith, we, like David, want to do this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. In other words, in all circumstances, remember, if David is writing this at the gates of Gath as he is acting in insanity, even in that moment with his life in peril, and David's sin evident because David, by going to the enemy to seek solace, was not trusting God to provide for his safety, but like so many of the prophets calling Israel not to trust in other nations or people, but to trust in the Lord, he was failing. He was failing to place his trust in the Lord, but even in that sin and that circumstance, he knew that that was the person he could come to. This is so important to us, isn't it? If you today are struggling with sin and have fallen into temptation and you recognize the situation is dire, particularly if it's such a sin that if somebody finds out, they might breach their relationship with you or there might be consequences to your sin. Let me assure you, like David, you can come to the Lord. He is the one place that you can come to praise him continually and always. And he says in verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Scripture tells us not to do much boasting. But you know, I find myself sometimes, and much to my children's chagrin, getting out my phone and showing people pictures of my kids. My son this week, my older son, played his last ball game in high school. And as he played that last ball game, I'm such a terrible picture taker, I thought I need to take a picture. In fact, I took a video of his last at bat. And I want to show other people. Because... I love my son, and I want to boast about him. He drove in a run after all. But scriptures tell us not to boast in ourselves, not to boast in other things, not to boast in anything but one thing, the Lord. Let me ask you. If you're a man or woman of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you interested in telling others about the Lord as much as about your grandchildren? Are you interested in telling people about the Lord as much as your accomplishments? This is what David says, my soul boasts in the Lord. Now David had a lot later on in life to boast about. He was the king, he was a military leader, lots of victories. He had lots of wealth, he had lots of children. He also had lots of wives, not a good recommendation. But he had a lot to boast about. But what does he say he wants to boast about? The 
Lord, why? Well, he's going to tell us in just a little bit. But if we really love the Lord and we want to boast in him, even above boasting about our children and our grandchildren and our spouses and our accomplishments and everything that life has given us, then we invite and recruit others to join in that celebration. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. He said in verse 2, let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. In fact, the person who has a relationship with the Lord not only wants to praise him all the time and tell others the wonders of what God has done, he wants everybody else to join him. Why is it that some of you feel so compelled to invite somebody to church? It's because you want them to praise God with you for what God has done in your life. And you want them to praise God with you for what God is doing in their life. And you want them to praise God with you for what he is doing in the world. This is the vow of praise. If you have that relationship with the Lord, you don't want to stay away. You want to praise him and boast about him and share him with others. And so therefore it becomes not only a vow of praise, but a testimony of praise. Sometimes we talk about testimonies. And sometimes we talk about testimonies in the wrong way. Sometimes when we talk about a testimony, that testimony is really somebody just telling all about himself. But what is a testimony according to scripture? A testimony is telling what God has done for you. And this is what David does. This is very personal. This is, an, this is a testimony of praise and what God has done for David. He's first invited everybody to boast about God and to talk about him and praise him. And then he says, here's why. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. The Lord answers prayer. You know, how often do we need to tell others the Lord answers prayer? Did you have a particular besetting sin in which you thought you would never escape and somehow God allowed you to escape that particular sin? Then tell others that God has answered that prayer. Have you been in a time and situation where you thought everything was hopeless and there seemed to be no escape and then God, for some unsuspecting reason, provided for you an escape in a time of trouble like David here? If he answers you, that's part of your testimony. That God has answered you and delivered you from your fears. In fact, the word is horrors. Here is David. These, this was a horrible situation. His father-in-law was the king of Israel and he was seeking to kill him. He was running around the countryside trying to escape from him. And of course, we know that at one point Saul even has all the priests of God killed because they helped David. So David flees to this enemy that he has been at war with for many years by now. And he now is so threatened that he feels like the only escape is to act insane. And God answered his call. He escaped. He was able to leave that situation and have his life preserved. The Lord answered prayer. But not only that, look at what it says in verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, here's David, having experienced this thing where he acted like an insane person because he was in such dire straits. 
Now, if that doesn't make you shamed in front of the public, I don't know what will. But he says, those who look to the Lord, their faces shine. Does that remind you of anything? It should remind you of the Old Testament when Moses went up to the mountain of God and was receiving the Ten Commandments and the law of God. And when he came back down from the mountain, it says in Exodus 34 that his face was shining so brilliantly, having been in the presence of God, that he had to put a veil on his face so that the people could look at him. You see, when we seek the Lord, and when we're in his presence, there is a change that comes upon us. In Moses' case, it was a literal change because he was in the very presence of God. If any of us were to come to the very presence of the throne room of God in heaven and come back to earth, we too would be shining, reflecting the brilliance of the glory of God. But spiritually, we too are changed. You know those people, those people that you recognize there's something different about them. You know, where I went to college, the theme of that college while I was there was it was called the shining difference. That's what we're to be as Christians. When we're called to be the salt and the light, we're called to be the shining difference. That is, in some ways, it's attractive, but in some ways, it's hard to look at because we're all about truth and we're all about God's grace but we're all about understanding our position before God. Seeing the Lord brought radiance. And then here's his personal experience. This poor man. And when you first read that, you wonder, now who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. This poor man, at that point in time, David is homeless. He's without resources. He's completely reliant upon others, and he cried out. And his experience was God heard him, and he saved him out of all his troubles. We know this is true because David ascended to the throne, didn't he? And then verse 7, here's a part of that personal experience. It says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Isn't that a wonderful statement? To encamp around those who fear him. It's not just that you're going to a campsite and you're enjoying uh, s'mores around the fire. This kind of encampment is a military encampment. This is the kind of encampment where it camps around you and protects you and guards you. So here this poor man cries out, has nothing, no resources, no ability to save himself. He cries out to God. God listens, and he comes around, and we might say in certain uh, Christian terms, he builds his hedge around him. And of course, this angel of the Lord, what, a, what an interesting character in Scripture. I, I wrote a paper on the angel of the Lord in seminary. And one particular commentator of this passage has said that this angel of the Lord is God's presence on earth, perhaps even Christ incarnate. That God, by his grace, is with his people. So yesterday was a presbytery meeting. I went to Hartsville, South Carolina in the rain. 
And every time we go to Presbytery, the first thing that happens after we do a little bit of introduction and all this kind of stuff is we have a worship service. And in that worship service, there's a sermon, and then we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That's the most important thing, perhaps, that we do together as a presbytery. And, you know, I don't often get to sit under someone else's preaching because for some reason the preacher is always me. But it's important for the preacher to be fed sometimes, whether he's fed by watching other videos or by listening to other things or whether it's occasionally being able to hear someone else preach. Saturday's sermon was preached by the young pastor of Hartsville who is just installed as their senior pastor or solo pastor at this time. He's only been in the ministry for two or three years. And yet his sermon on the calling of the 12 disciples was so impactful to me. Because of this, I was reminded in that short chapter in Mark, chapter 3, when he called the disciples, he said he was uh, desiring to call these men so that they could do these three things. To preach, to exercise authority, and then the other was the first thing that was written. To be with him. God called those apostles, first of all, to be with him. To be, what does it mean to be with the Lord? In the case of the apostles, that meant they were at his feet learning. But they also meant that they were with him in spirit when Jesus went into heaven. They were called to be with him. In other words, their relationship with the Lord was the paramount thing that they were called to. It was primary to the secondary calling of the preaching and the exercising of authority. The most important thing of a pastor and any member of a church is your relationship with the Lord. And so David, in understanding this importance, calls the reader to have a relationship with the Lord. This perhaps, verse 8, is the theme of the entire psalm. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. For a teacher who loves to give information and teach intellectual things and even trivial things, the experience is so important. To a Presbyterian who often is considered a part of the frozen chosen that is intellectual and just wants to tell people all the truths and all the the doctrines and theology of scripture and to focus on reformed theology and all these things, we cannot forget our personal experience with the Lord. Taste and see what? That the Lord is omniscient, omnipresent, powerful, all those words that we can use. That, that what, God is uh, sovereign and all those things? No, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You see, the evangelical call of the redeemed is to tell others, I've tasted, I've seen God's goodness to me. I've seen how he's been merciful and forgiven my sin. I see how he's given me blessings I don't deserve. I see how life has been given to me. And I see the wonders of God's amazing grace. I want you to experience the same thing. That's the evangelical call. And in this evangelical call, it's also a call for God's people to fear the Lord. Those who fear him have no lack 
or want. This is the first call of faith, to place your fear in the proper things. Your fear should not be in other people. Your fear should not be in the consequences of your own sin. Your fear should no longer be in the things of this world or the fear that things are falling apart. Your fear is in God because he alone is sovereign and the judge. And to understand God as our father, we not only see the love of the father, but we also see the authority of the father. And so we have a proper fear before him. And then this evangelical call also reminds us of this. It says the young lions suffer want and hunger. In other words, those who do not fear the Lord are looking to overtake others and oppress others in a certain way for their own advantage and benefit. Those folks will succumb to their own wants and desires. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Seek the Lord. So in other words, the evangelical call on the one hand is to taste and see that God is good. Secondly, as we see that God is good, we also recognize that that goodness comes with a healthy dose of fear. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his Chronicles of Narnia series with Aslan being the, the, uh, the, the parallel to God, he says he's not a tame lion. So here we understand there's a fear, a healthy fear of this God who gives us good things. But on the other hand, we're also reminded to seek the Lord. We will not do this on our own. Scripture tells us there is no one who does this. It is only the person of faith who does this. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says it is impossible to please God unless you believe that God exists. And the other thing is that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That is a crucial of the faith. If you don't believe that God rewards those who seek him, then you cannot please God. So here we're calling others to see the goodness of God, to understand the, the importance of the fear of God, but also the reward for those who seek him. If you truly seek the Lord, that is, you're not seeking the benefits that he gives us. We're not seeking the blessings that he gives us. We're seeking him, the Lord. You know, I I seek a lot of stuff. I, I want many blessings. I want my children to come to faith. I want future grandchildren. I want my relationship with my wife to always be wonderful. I, you know, there's a lot of things, I want. a lot of those are good things. But that's not the primary thing I should be seeking. I'm seeking the one who gives those things, the Lord. You know, when we look at the gifts we receive from family members at Christmas time, what's more important, the gift or the person who gave it? As children, we don't get it. We just love the gifts. But as we grow and mature, we understand that the giver is more important than the gift. We seek the Lord. So the evangelical call of the redeemed is to seek the Lord, to taste and see his goodness. And the evangelical teaching of the redeemed, then, is this. 
Come, O oh children, listen to me. This is the call of a teacher, isn't it? Come gather round. I have something to share with you. I have something to teach you. I will teach you what? This is the first lesson. The fear of the Lord. This is consistent with David's son Solomon when he says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So here it is. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may say, see good? Now, if you don't answer, I'm one of those people, then I don't think you understand. This is a rhetorical question. Everybody wants life. Everybody wants long life and prosperity, and they want to see good things. This is to get their attention and say, okay, who wants this? Let me tell you how it happens. Lesson two, gain life through obedience. And the obedience that comes from faith, of course. And he gives very practical things. First of all, guard your tongue. Guard your tongue and your lips from speaking evil and deceit. In other words, if you truly trust in the Lord, you are willing to tell the truth even when the consequences are such that you may lose some blessings. In today's day and age, Lying is popular. Deceit fills the lips of reporters and journalists and politicians and teachers and educated people all across our land. Lying is popular. Denying the truth is popular. Deceiving others for personal gain or privilege is popular. But the man of God and the woman of God guard their tongues. Why? Because they know the goodness of God. Secondly, repent. That's what it means when it says turn away from evil and do good. When we're doing evil, we do evil because we like it or we like the things that are associated with it. Let's be honest. Why do you do wicked things? Not only because you have a wicked heart, it's in your nature to do wicked things, but you love the temporary pleasures of sin. And he says to these children, repent. Turn from those things. Why? Because it's fearing the judgment of God. Why? Because it's fearing the God who has the power to forgive. It is so important. And instead... Of doing evil, what do we do? We seek peace and pursue it. Now, it sounds like this is the natural thing that everybody wants to do. We all want to have peace and prosperity, right? Well, the peace here is the peace that passes all understanding. The peace that in our relationship with God, because we've turned from evil, note the context here. And it's a peace that... Yes, sometimes the world will look at it and say, well, your kind of peace seems to be kind of tumultuous. And it is because those who are in Christ evidently have such problems in this world that their families are going to be divided, their communities are going to be divided, the world is going to be divided. But you know what? It already kind of is. So if you're pursuing peace, you're pursuing peace with God and his son, Jesus Christ by turning from evil and doing what is right. I read an article in one of the local online papers about the current complaints of elementary teachers. I have a wife for an elementary teacher. 
I think I've heard all those complaints. One of them was a lack of support from the administration. Another one was a lack of respect from students. And another one is just that they're just tired. What is the problem in our schools? A problem is this. There aren't enough people saying, come children, gather around, because there's a lack of discipline. There's a lack of obedience to authority. There's a lack of holding others accountable. We just want our children to go and be happy. We just want our children to go and be having a lack of conflict and being patted on the head and said, what a wonderful boy and girl you are. Sometimes both at the same time. But what does the wisdom psalmist David say? Fear the Lord, turn from evil, repent of your sin, and pursue peace. In other words, instruction and wisdom is gained not just from acquiring information and skill, but in the relationship you have with the God of history and the God of creation. And why should you want it? Because of who God is to his people. Here's what David says in verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. He can't take his eyes off his people. You know, the church is called the bride of Christ. I have to tell you, of any person in my life that I want to please, I want to please Jennifer the most. I fail a lot. Sometimes I say the wrong things. Sometimes I do the wrong things. Sometimes I have the wrong ideas to please her. Sometimes perhaps I want to please her even at the cost of doing what is right. One of my favorite movies when I was younger was The Princess Bride. And in that movie, there is a prince or someone who is going to be a prince, I guess, and there's this uh, farmer's, uh, farmer's daughter or something, I don't even know what she is, and, and, and they love each other, and of course, what happens is they get separated. But there's a moment in the movie where, at the beginning, she asks him to do certain things, and he always says, as you wish. And of course, there's a funny part of the movie, too, where at some point... She doesn't know who he is. He's come back, and she thinks he's dead and all this other stuff, and they're, they're there, and she thinks he's a horrible person because of the circumstances, and so she pushes him down this hill, and he calls out to her, as you wish, as he falls down the hill. You see, here, God can't take his eyes off his people. He loves them so much. He wants the best for them so much. He's not going to do this in a wrong way or an evil way. But it says he watches us and he hears us. He is always paying attention to us. He's not asleep at the wheel. He's ready at two in the morning. He's ready when it's inconvenient. He's ready all the time because he's always paying attention to his people. He sees them and he hears them. And because he loves his people, he's opposed to those who are not his people. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. You see, it's such a comfort for me to know that God is not indifferent to unbelievers and to those who fail to fear him. He's not indifferent. He's not going to say, oh, you know, those people, it doesn't matter about them. Don't worry about them. 
I have comfort in knowing that God loves me and all his people so much that he will pay attention to us and at some point he will give justice to those who are evil. This is one thing we cry for in our land is for justice. He opposes evildoers, but what does he do to those who are broken and weary? Here's what he says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. He delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Here was David. He was broken and crushed, not knowing where to turn before the gates of Gath. But he turned to the Lord, and the Lord was near him. What an important aspect of the kingdom to know that when you're in the lowest spot in life and it looks like there is no hope, it looks like God doesn't care, it looks like the world is crushing in upon you, there is one person, if you are God's person, whom he has called to faith, who has called to repentance, who has brought into his kingdom and into his family, God will go to you. He is near because he wants to redeem the righteous. Verse 19 is so funny. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. I really don't know what wealth and health prosperity preachers do with this verse. Because it says this. It doesn't say, if you believe in the Lord and you are one of his people, and you are righteous in that sense, having been given the righteousness of Christ by faith, then you're not going to have any trouble in the world. No, it's completely the opposite. Many are your afflictions. You're going to have difficult times, hard times, difficult relationships, hard situations, consequences of your faith. All of these things are going to come pressing down at you at one point or another in life. But the promise is that the Lord will deliver you from them. Maybe not the way you expect, maybe not at that moment, but he will deliver you from all of these afflictions. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. He preserves their bones. This, of course, is a euphemism. It doesn't mean that you're, you, you won't have a bone broken, although in the case of Christ, it was prophetic. It was told to us that not one of Christ's bones was broken. But it's especially meaning in this context that God will preserve his people. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. It contrasts God's relationship with us, contrasts the death of the guilty by the affliction. It's kind of the the, the thing here that says, if you come to the end of the rope, don't hang yourself with it. That happens to the wicked sometimes. Their guilt, their overwhelming circumstances, their afflictions, when they have no place to turn to, what happens sometimes? It may even get to the point where they take their own life. And here it says, Affliction may slay the wicked, or will slay the wicked, but those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Now I'm not saying here, let me be careful and say it doesn't mean that I think everybody who has committed suicide was a guilty person and they're struggling with their conscience and all those things. I don't mean that. But I do mean that some will so terribly get involved in their own sin that the circumstances will present such a hopeless feature that this will overcome them either literally or figuratively. 
But on the other hand, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. In fact, it's interesting. This verse, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. In other words, he redeems by justification by faith alone. In other words, he will redeem you and he will no longer see your guilt because your guilt has been imputed by the one who has redeemed you, the Lord Jesus Christ, who atoned for your sins on the cross. The other interesting thing is this. This particular verse is the only verse in the entire psalm that's not a part of the acrostic. It's not a part of the ABCs of the Hebrew alphabet. This author goes back and comes to this point because it's an important point that he wants to illustrate. Maybe there's not time to fit it into the poem. I don't know why he did that. Perhaps it's for emphasis. But he says, the Lord redeems your life if you are his servant. If you take refuge in him, you will no longer be condemned. Why? Because your faith is in him and not yourself. Your faith is in him and not another person. Your faith is in the Lord who redeems his people, who loves them so much he can't take his eyes off them, who is willing to be near them when they're in the darkest, deepest places of their soul. David desired to be in the Lord's presence, and it became his default mode to seek him in times of affliction. Why? Because there's a two-way relationship with the Lord and his people. The Lord loves us and calls us and redeems us. And in turn, what do we do? We want to be with him. We fear him. We obey him. But we also tell others of the wonders of the glory of the cross. This is why the church has this great commission. Go out and make disciples. What do these disciples do? Is it just that they're doing works of, of, of wonderful things? No, those are important things. Is it just that they're exhibiting fruit of the Spirit? No, they're not just doing that, although that is crucial to the life of a believer. But they are praising God together for who he is and what he has done. The life of the redeemed by the God who is not only there, but he loves us with an undying love, sending his son to die for us. Let's pray to him. Lord, there are some times when I struggle to be with you. There are times when my prayer life is in shambles. There are times when I have neglected to read your word. There are times when I don't want to share the things of your kingdom. I want to share things of my own kingdom. Father, I pray that you will forgive me of these things and remind me once again that you are the God who loves his people. And Lord, that you have called all of us through David and through others inspired by your spirit, writing these words to call others to say, come and see, taste and see the goodness of God. Help us.